to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. I am Thomas Drance, your host, and filling in with me today is Harmon Dial. Uh, we are coming to you live from the Kintec Mobile Studio at Rogers Arena. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500, or actually, excuse me, 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. Before we get into everything else, I want to tell you and remind you that today is the Canucks for Kids Fund telethon game as the Canucks host the Vegas Golden Knights. Now, donations can be made now, like right now, and everyone who donates before midnight today will be entered to win a brand new 2023 Toyota Corolla Hybrid. Donations can be made online now at Canucks.com slash telethon. Now, if you donate $100 or more, right? Fans who donate 100 bucks or more will receive an 8 times 10 photo from Kevin BX's retirement night. Um, for donations of 150 or more, fans will receive both a BXA retirement night photo and a one-of-a-kind 8 times 10 photo of 2023 Hockey Hall of Fame inductees Daniel Sedin, Henrik Sedin, and Roberto Luongo. Funds raised through the Canucks for Kids Fund Telethon directly support the fund and its core beneficiaries, including the Canucks Autism Network, Canucks Place Children's Hospice, and BC Children's Hospital Foundation. This great event raised over six hundred eight, six hundred eighty thousand last year. So, uh, looking forward to seeing it on broadcast tonight. The heavy hitters are in attendance at Rogers Arena. It'll be a great show this evening, and you can get involved once get involved once again. That's Canucks.com/slash/telethon. Of course, if you'd like to reach us over the course of the show and contribute to our discussion, guide our discussion, provide feedback like, hey, Thomas, get better at your reads, uh, you can do so at the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, Dunbar Lumber, of course, is the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver or go online at DunbarLumber.com. All right. It's a Canucks game day. First home game since a valiant road trip through the southwestern United States. Wins back-to-back in L.A. and Orange County. And a loss, unfortunately, at Mullet Arena to the Arizona Coyotes. And now the Vancouver Canucks return back to Rogers Arena, one of the hottest teams in the NHL, to take on an old playoff rival. The last time the Canucks had a playoff rival. The Vegas Golden Knights. This team used to bully Vancouver. And it feels like ever since Demko ate their lunch money in the bubble, even though the Canucks lost, it's kind of turned. Like, do you remember last year, the Golden Knights beat the Canucks, and it looked like the end, like the final, finally, the final nail in the Bruce There It Is run. And then the Canucks had this dead cat bounce again, five straight, right, to get back to where they started to feel inevitable, where hope simmered in this market. And that included two other... beatdowns of Vegas, including one in Vegas. Just the first two years of this Vegas team's existence, it felt like they could do no wrong against the Canucks. And ever since that playoff series, it feels like, yeah, Vegas has won a few, but it feels like Vancouver's got something, some edge. They always play them tough now. Yeah, and one of the Canucks' best performances of the season was when they went to Vegas and absolutely lit them up. So 
I think one of the biggest differences has been that as Vegas has sort of evolved and invested in a lot of star talent, reshaped their roster, had a lot of turnover, they've lost some of the core identity that they had as mm. this team that could just overwhelm you on the forecheck and dominate possession-wise. They used to talk about how when they're on their game, they manhandle their opponents. They'd say that. Yeah. On the record, Vegas players, there was a swagger to them that, you know, does feel a little different now that they're but now that they're a little bit of more of a skilled version of what they were before, although still excellent defensively. Yeah, and they're a bit more top-heavy now mm. as well be- because that's what happens when you go out and you sign an Alex Petrangelo, when you go out and give up assets and, and uh, acquire a legitimate number one center like Jack Eichel. It takes away weapons like Alex Tuck on the third line, which is which is the type of luxury that a lot of NHL teams um, didn't have, right? And, and it's a sort of trade-off that they made, especially now that this team is without Mark Stone as well. Vegas is, is still a good team, don't get me wrong, but it feels like they're like they just don't scare you. You know what I mean? Like you, you don't go, you, you don't go wa- wa- watching Vegas on the on the calendar and view oh, that as like, oh boy, this, exactly. Yeah. It, it, you don't fear them the way you do Colorado, for example. I also think that the lack of stability in net has removed some of their swagger. There was something about Mark Andre Fleury's showmanship back there. And and obviously things got complicated with you know the sword wound that Mark Andre Fleury sustained over the course of his time in Vegas. But I do feel like losing him removed some swagger from this team. And not that Fleury at this stage of his career is more than an average starter, but there was something showtime that Fleury brought to a Vegas-based team that you know whether it's Leonard, whether it's Thompson, whether it's Quick, there's a certain like sizzle. That I, that I feel is missing without flour in the net. Just just a, a very eye-test take for me on a very eye-test show for us because I want to talk about Quinn Hughes. So we've set the scene, but fundamentally what I want to talk about today, at least in segment one and maybe in segment two, is Quinn Hughes. So Quinn Hughes today was asked by reporters in the room, right? First time to ch- chat with him since his uh, excellent performance on the road. And he was asked by a reporter, do you think that your game is in line with that of other possible Norris nominees this year? The absolute best defenders in the game. Are you at that level? And Quinn Hughes had a thoughtful, lengthy answer. And in the middle of it dropped a moment of defiance, like a a defiant, declarative, sassy statement from Quinn Hughes that kind of stopped me cold and it's one of those where I immediately picked up my phone and, and paraphrased it and threw it on Twitter just because I thought it was so telling. Um, I've seen a few moments of this from Quinn Hughes. I remember it was the Edmonton Oilers victory that Vancouver had right before Christmas, the Christmas break in Hughes's first season. And I don't know if you remember this, but it was the first time that that Tanev-Hughes pair was really hard-matched in a game, and obviously that meant being hard-matched against Connor McDavid. And the underlying numbers were poor, but Hughes had kept up with McDavid all game. His speed, a crucial part of Vancouver effectively neutralizing the best hockey-playing human on the planet. And then Hughes scored the winner on the power play. A rare Quinn Hughes winner off a slap shot. And afterwards, you know, I remember asking him about the hard match, about what it meant to him. 
And he was excited because he, he mentioned, in my draft year, people always said I'd be a defensive. I wasn't going to be big enough to defend at this level. And I knew I could. And there and there was a, and he had the same tone today when he said, anyone who says I'm a defensive liability, frankly, hasn't watched the games. And I just thought that was fantastic. I, first of all, Quinn Hughes doesn't miss on his hockey takes. <laughs> He's right. Yeah. He's so far from a defensive liability, it's almost hard to put it into context, although we'll try. Secondly, I don't know how much Hughes as a defensive liability chatter still exists in like the hockey commentariat, but I do think there I do think that's a line you hear from fans. Oh still. yeah. Still. And you know, pro athletes will often find whatever slight they can. Right, anything, anything for that extra push of motivation. Hughes has clearly still got that push, that desire to prove that he can be a top defender in this league, a number one guy, and a number one guy who has a big defensive impact. And I thought it was a revealing quote about his mindset and what sort of drives him still to keep leveling up as a player at this level. Absolutely, I, I think that conversations that he had with NHL teams in the lead-up to the draft were essentially his Jordan and I took that personally moment (laughs) because I was chatting with him earlier this season and Hughes was talking about the level that he's taken defensively and, and it still disturbed him at that moment that NHL teams, all he heard at the combine in, in, in interviews was how are you going to defend at the NHL level? Right, which he took offense to because he, because he felt that teams hadn't watched him defend actually in in college, which I think Canucks fans should actually kind of be thankful for because it's one of the reasons he fell in the draft and went to uh, went to Vancouver at number seven because there's no way he should have been there in terms of the other tools that he has offensively, all the all the potential he had. I remember watching tape of him for the University of Michigan at college and. And never once did it cross my mind that he has trouble defending. Because the way that he could use his feet to defend the rush, close quickly. I mean, look at the um, World Championships performance that he had for, um, for for the United States. Again, this happened before the draft against NHL competition. Mm. And he looked so comfortable with uh, with Jeff Blashill behind the bench, coaching, De- who obviously was part of Detroit as well. So I figured Detroit at 6 for sure was going to take uh, Hughes after that performance. And yet, still... NHL teams looked at his size and went, and and went. We we don't think he can do it. Could you imagine a Hughes cider first pair? Could you imagine that building block from Detroit's perspective? Like what a massive miss. Well, I actually had a, I had the chance a few years ago to talk to Ken Holland about it because I did a deep dive feature on how Hughes fell to seven. And Holland, he didn't say this directly, but it was sort of implied where he was like. You can't always you you have to look at what else is in your system sometimes and make some of your draft decisions accordingly. And he pointed out that that they had Hironik, they had Shalowski. The point that he was trying to get at Ouch. was that like <laughs> the point that he was trying to get at was that at the time they felt that they had a lot of s- smaller offensive defensemen, and so that w- that I think was one of the motivating motivating factors for why like Hughes was right there in their backyard. I know. So many draft misses include the story of we already had that guy. Yeah. Which is, I I actually think, relevant because the chances of the Canucks picking 11 and the best player on the board being another winger are through the roof. Through the roof. And they have to do it. 
Like, yeah. if you got a shot at Benson or Crystal in that nine to eleven range, like for me, I, no questions. You got you got to do it. But you know, this team's probably going to have a tough discussion internally about whether or not they should. But that's where that's where we can't draft Matthew Kachuk. We already have Jake Vertanen. We need D. Like <laughs> every huge whiff especially at the top of the draft, it feels like always has a story like, well, we've got a surplus at that position. Like, who cares? Even Montreal in that draft, you're reaching to take Kock and Yemi at number three. I thought that was pretty surprising. And, and when you looked at their sort of... It was at the time. Yeah, and when you sure. looked at their sort of the players that they drafted, it was hilarious where it's like one year they drafted like five or six left shot defensemen to try and fill that positional need. And then another year they drafted like five centers. And it's like, that's just... When you're drafting that high in the class, you just can't do that. But, of course, that worked out to the Canucks' uh, favor. Now, we'll play the Quinn Hughes audio when we get it from the locker room, but I think it's worth watching in full. Now, we've talked about this a little bit on this program, and I want to I talk about it again, right? Because the Canucks are two different teams, okay? They are the team that Quinn Hughes is on the ice for. Right, 1,200 five-on-five minutes. The plus-minus numbers, if you go check it on the back of a hockey card or on his NHL.com page, we'll read plus 16. But the problem with plus-minus, beyond the fact that you know uh, goal differential is subject to intense variance outside the control of an individual player, is that it mixes game states. And the way it mixes game states is designed to especially ding a player like Hughes. Because... Empty net goals, which are six-on-five situations in which one goaltender is absent from the playing surface, count as a minus if you're on the ice for it as a goal against. Short-handed goals scored four-on-five against you when you're on the ice for a power play. Those count as a minus. And penalty kill goals obviously count as a plus, which, you know, Hughes kills penalties, but he's not like a number one penalty killing guy. I'm sure though that his plus minus has gotten an artificial boost from the way that this team has scored shorthanded over the last little bit. By mixing game states, you really obscure the photo, uh, the sort of full picture in a way that often obscures the two-way impact of more offensively oriented players. And I'm not saying defensive liability, because uh, I don't think Quinn Hughes is one. But a player like Quinn Hughes is always going to look worse by plus minus then they should. And for Hughes, that's the case too. Like, with Hughes on the ice, the Canucks have outscored their opponents 72-54 at this point in the season. That's plus 18 across 1,200 minutes. If this team played to a plus 18 goal differential every 1,200 minutes they played, and they played that times three, basically, they wouldn't just be a playoff team. They'd be contenders for best team in the division. They'd be one of the top seven or eight five-on-five teams in hockey. That's how they profile with this one guy, with Quinn Hughes, with him bending gravity, bending the game to his will on the ice. The problem is, is that in all other minutes, the Canucks get shellacked. So 82 goals for in 2,100 minutes. So think about that. They in, in 900 additional minutes with Quinn Hughes on the bench, more than what he's played, they've only scored 10 additional goals. Like, the offense is bad without Hughes breaking the puck out himself, without Hughes keying uh, what this club can do both in zone and and off the rush. Uh, Additionally, 114 goals against, which is a stunning amount, right? I mean, this club permits goals at a far lower rate 
with Quinn Hughes controlling games, they score way fewer. The the impact on offense is mammoth, just huge. Minus thirty two. Now, if they also did that across, like, got outscored at a similar rate across Hughes's twelve hundred minutes, no question about it, this team would have really good Bedard odds, and I'd probably be singing their praises. <laughs> they are two different teams, and you know, increasingly, I think we can talk about the challenge on a day when Philip Peronik finally joins his teammates on the ice for morning skate. I think, you know, I really think we can distill the challenge facing Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford as. You got to get that minus 32 to just like zero. You don't even need to be like winning the minutes with Hughes off the ice, but you got to get it to zero if you're going to have a chance to make what the best players on this team can do stand up in seasons, over full seasons, over 82 games, and certainly in the playoffs if this club gets to where they want to go. That minus 32 number, the the swing, the like 50 <laughs> goal swing between when Hughes is on the ice and when Hughes is off of it, that's everything. That's the whole offseason. That's if this retool, which, you know, I you know I think it's misguided, but if this retool has any chance, that minus 32 is the number that must be fixed. For sure. The interesting too, thing, too, is that for years, Edmonton faced a similar challenge where it was like when McDavid and Drysaddle aren't on the ice at 5-on-5, five five, they would just get absolutely crushed. Now, what's interesting is that this season, for example, the Oilers are plus 11 at 5-on-5 five five when McDavid and Settle are not on the ice, which means that in the last two or three years, they've really been able to take those significant steps. And I think that's fascinating because I don't even look at the Oilers as a team that has has made home run transactions and necessarily being able to fill out their roster. Like, I, d- I don't think it's taken a miracle for them to get to where they are right now, where at 5-on-5, five five, they're outscoring teams when their best two players aren't on the ice. So, does that change your perception on how doable it is to actually fix those non-Pedersen and non-Hughes minutes? I mean... It could be a huge impact. Like, one thing we've seen already is, like, just moving from what this club was icing on defense earlier this season to, like, Christian Wolanin has helped, right? I mean, a little can go a long way when you're talking about depth minutes, and yet it's hard to find that little if you don't have the flexibility under the cap to, like, change course, to mm. to actually capitalize off the roots you find for improvement right like that's sort yeah. of that's sort of how it all dovetails now i think we have this hughes audio uh we'll listen to it in the second segment just because we're we're running out of time and i also want to note one thing about the hughes comment that i love so much quinn hughes full-on tape bro <laughs> watch the games watch the games quinn hughes thinks you got to watch the games now quinn hughes Shows extraordinarily well in terms of his analytic profile is also. But I don't think he's wrong. Like, I think to really appreciate the way that Quinn Hughes exerts gravity over the flow of play, you need to watch him. In, and I'll go even further. I think you need to watch him live. Like, I think to really understand how Hughes pulls apart opposition defenders, to really understand his mastery 
on the breakout to really understand the way that he surfs and, and squeezes a, 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 the opposition at the defensive blue line, the way that he can disrupt the rush, the way that he can get back into plays, um, you know, it, it, in the event that he's caught, how rarely he gets caught, right? How how he's aggressive with rotational cover and, and checks on it. Um, his overall on-ice awareness. I actually think live viewing is essential to really understanding Quinn Hughes. And it's got me thinking, and I, I thought, you know, you and I, we're both relatively analytics-friendly, but our audience watches the games. I know they watch the games. I know all of you listening at home, in your car, at work, watch the games. So... I figured we'd challenge ourselves to come up with three Canucks takes outside of Quinn Hughes not being a defensive liability that you need to watch the games to know, like where the stats might mislead you if you weren't really paying close attention. I want to get that into that in the next segment. So if you're listening from from home, if you're listening in your car, if you're listening from work, if you're listening to this program, text in, give us your suggestions. What's your best Canucks take? Your best Canucks eye test take. Channel your inner Quinn Hughes tape, bro, and give us your best eye test Canucks take. Things things you'd only know if you watch this Canucks team play every day, and we'll get into that in the, on the other side of the break. We'll also listen uh, here listen to and hear from both Rick Tockett and Quinn Hughes and we'll do it all on Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Hello and welcome back to Canucks Talk. I am your host Thomas Drance joined today by Harmon Dial filling in again. Of course Canucks Talk is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Uh, visit avenuemachinery.ca for more info or douglaslakeequipment.com because, of course, Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment together are your Kubota all-star team. Of course, I want to remind you all as well that it is the Canucks for Kids Fun telethon game tonight as the Canucks host Vegas. Donations can be made now, and everyone who donates before midnight today will be entered to win a brand new 2023 Toyota Corolla Hybrid donations can be made online right this moment at Canucks.com slash telethon. We're getting some fantastic takes in from folks talking about their eye test takes. The tape bros are out in full force, and we have some whoppers, like some really, really good ones for after we listen to Quinn Hughes. Um, Let's roll the Quinn Hughes audio because I thought this was a really informative a lengthy interview. I think it shows maturity, and I think it shows a, a certain defiance that we only see occasionally from Quinn Hughes, but when we see it, it's a lot of fun. So let's roll that tape. When, on the other side, we will get to your eye test Canucks takes. So please keep sending those in, 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text line. Let's roll the Hughes clip. Yeah, they're obviously having a really good year and uh, have some really good players. I mean, I feel like we've been I've been playing some good teams in the last couple of weeks with uh, the Dallas's and Toronto and Boston's world, but in LA's. But um, you know, so I don't think it's nothing we haven't seen recently. But we gotta make sure we're on our game for sure. The numbers that you put up this season, you know, in a different situation with a team that was fighting for a playoff spot, you'd probably get whether a Forest Trophy discussion or a first team All NHL discussion. Do you feel like you've you've played at that kind of level, right? Um. I feel like my game's really good right now. Uh, I mean, um, I'm proud that I'm plus and I'm playing a lot of minutes and defensively I've been trusted against the top lines and 
you know, anyone that says I'm a defensive liability, frankly, doesn't watch me play at this point. So, um, I don't know. I'm just more proud about that. I think as far as the numbers, like, I still haven't scored a lot, like, um, missed a lot of my chances, and I think that there's still lots of room to grow, to be honest with you. And um, so, yeah, I'm happy with my game, of course, with those uh, awards. Like, you have to be on a team maybe that wins, but um, I feel like I'm right there with a lot of the guys for sure. You hear that still, like, with the defensive liability? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I feel like, I don't know, you'd have to ask around people, but I think that, you know, me personally, I think I've been playing really strong defensively, especially since Christmas and on um last 40 games. So I just got to keep going. I mean, um, it's too bad we're not in, really in the hunt here. and But um, I feel like if I can continue to play like this for the, you know, next year and moving forward, I think that, you know, give ourselves a better chance. So like that's kind of fueling you a little bit still to prove people wrong maybe haven't watched you. Yeah, I mean, I think that my first year, everything was, you know, you know, roses, and I had, came in and, you know, probably did better than what people were expecting. And my second year, I was kind of, you know, we lost a lot of good, you know, players. And playing uh, with Chris, we lost him. And, um, you know, play Amats 10 times and McDavid 10 times. And I think I, you know, struggled my second year for sure. And then last year was a bounce back here. And I think this year I've been playing really strong hockey. So, Brent, what's the value of the push, not only for yourself, but collectively to, to keep this thing going where you probably think you could probably still improve in the last 12 or 13 games for for free they're going you know for the cuts anyway why why did i get a better draft choice yeah they're not so polar how important is the stretch in a lot of different i think it's really important i mean our starts of the year have been so poor so i mean to just you know kind of get a head start here and know you know what the standard is and what our systems are i think everyone should be coming in a camp in september with a clear thought in mind what they're expected and i think that's why this is important and on a personal note, I'm just trying to, like I said, I want to be um, one of the top guys in the league and I want to keep pushing myself and expect a lot of myself. And so it's good. And, you know, a lot of these teams are fighting for where they're going to be in the playoffs. So, um, you know, if we can, you know, steal some points, you know, that's that's good too. Like to play a ton and hurts been playing. Yeah. I mean, my conditioning's really good. I, I feel good right now. It's not like I'm playing these minutes and – lazy defensively or not pushing it offensively I feel like I'm pushing it offensively and defending so that's when you know I think that I'm I'm playing a good amount I mean when Hirona comes back and oh and some of these guys you know we'll have to get these guys involved probably a bit more and my minutes will decrease but I'm okay with that and um you know if I want to be on a playoff caliber team we're gonna need other defensemen to you know really play really good hockey and we have been, you know, I think our decor in the last couple of weeks, months since Footer and Gotch and Talk have come up and playing really well. So I'm proud of these guys. And, um, but yeah, I feel good. And, um, yeah. But the challenge stuff, they clearly seem to be appreciated. Yeah. I mean, like, I guess just. I think the more, like, sometimes the more you play, the more you feel into it. And, um, you're getting more touches, you're getting more chances. Um, you're in the rhythm a bit more. So, Maybe a little bit of that as well. He touched on getting Veronic back. Nice to see him out there. Yeah, I actually had no idea he was going to be out there and just saw him on the ice. But um, he looks good, obviously. It's going to be an important piece, uh, you know, definitely next year and, you know, down the road. But, yeah, looking forward to having him back out there. I, I don't know what his timetable is, but, um, yeah, it's exciting to see him out there. I know been playing 20 plays up every minute tonight. Do you have to change anything about your game when you know this to be playing that much No, I was just saying, like, I'm not, I told, like, I was just saying that 
I'm defending hard and I'm creating offensively. And that's, you know, when I'm doing those things, that's when, you know, I'm playing a good amount of minutes. But if I was, you know, cheating defensively and, and not, um, you know, playing hard or not pushing up the ice, that's when, you know, I'd be, you know, playing a little bit lazy and cheating. But I don't think I've been doing that. So and the minutes do your play except to admire a guy like that would be a good fit. Every heave for, for a year. I think you walked. Yeah, I mean, I was actually just texting him a couple weeks ago, but um, yeah, he was a guy that you know, like I said earlier, you know, he's so def- he was defensive too, and he was reliable, and he's like a real number one guy. And of course, I'm never going to be you know crazy hard to play against or anything like that. But um, to get close to him, like if I can defend like him, you know, I'd that's the goal. And offensively, he created a lot as well. So um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know tell you guys, I feel good right now. Uh, like I said, when guys come back and next year I'm sure it'll be split a little bit more but um you know I'm someone that kind of takes care of my body and you know it's not like I'm you know out doing a lot of crazy things you know I, I rest a lot so I feel good is there something and yeah I'm say maybe routine treats just takes maybe yeah yeah I mean I, I don't know I feel like I've been in this role for a while and I think my 21 year old year is the first year I was in it and I struggled and last year I think I had a really good year and this year I feel like I'm thriving in the role and I've always told you guys that you know when I'm 23 now when I'm 26 27 28 those give you my best years so I'm just going to keep getting better. I'm not sure why my questions were the garbled ones but for context that wasn't Charlie's Brown Charlie Brown's teacher talking that was me and the first question the person who Hughes referred to texting uh, a week ago or so was Duncan Keith. Uh, Hughes has always cited Duncan Keith as a defender that he admires and models his game after, and obviously was a guy who had a ton of minutes over the course of his career. Um, so I asked him about that, and then the second one is, were there any lessons you could draw from playing this much now that might carry over into next year should this team ride you to this extent? Um so, Quinn Hughes, big eye test guy, first off. I loved, like, do, what do you draw from that scrum overall? Because it doesn't sound like, to me, a scrum that he, Quinn Hughes would have given 18 months ago. Yeah, it shows that I think he's found confidence in who he is on and off off the ice to the point where he feels comfortable to be able to speak what's on his mind, which mm. I think is a theme that, you see that you hear about happening behind closed doors, whether it's you know in the locker room between uh, between intermissions, between periods, uh, on the ice trying to draw plays up. He he's a lot more confident in being vocal, and that's why I think he what you know gave him the confidence to be able to say something something like that. The other thing that really st- stood out to me there was, despite how good he feels about his game right now, I still got the sense that when he um, brought up his lack of scoring, for example, that he's not fully satisfied yet, no. which to me shows that he still has that drive where it's like, yeah, I'm really good at all these things, but I still need to fix it, fix this thing, or I really want to improve in this area where, where I think after his sophomore year, he was so pissed off with his defensive game that he keyed in on that. And during a lot of his skates, he'd ask, you know, his brothers, he'd, he'd be playing with um, Zegers in these small small area games and all he'd work on was defending his backwards skating and I think that was something that he was just obsessed with and to me obviously every player around the league in in a public setting is is going to say I always want to get better blah 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 but 
there are like you can tell which guys genuinely mean it <laughs> and which which guys are complacent and for Hughes to be playing at this level and still be able to look at his look at areas where it's like I still want to improve in this area that shows a level of ambition to me that is really 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 impressive yeah I also liked the commentary about what the team needs to look like if they're going to be the sort of playoff caliber team he wants to play on uh, how that might involve him making some sacrifices in terms of his minutes. I, I doubt that, but <laughs> it could happen. And then the other notable part to me was the comment that, you know, I'm never going to be super hard to play against. Um, you know, I I think it's pretty hard to play against a guy who dominates the puck the way he does and controls games the way he does, uh, who comes out of battles the way he does. Even the way that he, like, bats pucks that should be cleared. You know, like, there's a lot of pucks that, like, get cleared at waist height that Quinn Hughes has such good hand eye, like it's hard to get the puck past him at the offensive blue line. That means an extra forty five seconds chasing, you know, your opponent around. Uh, that's the sort of, you know, it, it's not something we commonly associate with toughness, but that's the sort of thing that can remove oxygen from an opponent's lungs, and that it's not a easy spot to be in as a defensive player. Hughes maybe should give himself a little more credit for how difficult he is to play against. All right, I test connect six. Do you have one? Yeah, I do. I I got two, so I'm gonna go first. Sure, and then I'm gonna and then I'm gonna. So here's one. Anyone looking at team save percentage and being like, "Well, the Canucks are last." AHL goaltending sunk their season. If you've watched these games, you know how poorly this team played. How much they surrendered off the rush. How they got seamed on the penalty kill how many shots against like there's no expected goals model that can account for like one expected goal off that shot no chance for the goalie and the Canucks were giving up a ridiculous amount of those for the first 50 games of the year if you're just looking at the numbers you'd say hey Canucks goaltending that'll bounce back Demko was hurt and they had AHL goaltending worse than the league historically bad I've even heard people say historically bad which is just an out to lunch take the Canucks goaltending was a problem this year. It wasn't the problem this year. It wasn't. And if you've watched the games, you know that. So watch the games, bros. Yeah, it was one of the problems, mm-hmm. right? I don't think it, it's not where you can just point at it and be like, that's a singular thing that sunk our uh, season, especially with all the uh, backdoor chances that Absolutely. we saw, whether it was on the penalty kill, whether it was off the rush. Plays where it's just like the goalie has essentially no chance on, which... It also has an impact, I think, which this is more of an intangible. I wonder how much that creates a snowball effect or a negative feedback loop where you end up giving a lot of those types of goals and then because you've let up let up goals, you feel worse about your game, your confidence cripples, and then the saves that you should probably, may, probably be making, you start to let those in too because you're just, you've lost confidence in yourself. So what's your eye test take? My test take is that to to understand Elias Pettersson's magnetic impact in terms of how he draws defenders like a magnet and elevates his line mates, you need to watch that. You need to watch the Canucks. Yeah. It's legitimately special. At 5-on-5, five five, how many times do you see him weaving, stick-handling stick the puck through traffic? It's like three defenders are all like tunnel vision looking at him in his vicinity. 100%. And then it's like he's able to make a pass to whoever his line mate is, who now all of a sudden has a ton of time like and space. Like acres of space. Yeah. yeah. 
Like it, that, it's it's bonkers. It is bonkers. It's um, you know what? It, it very very different style of player. But the guy, the Canucks player, I remember watching and thinking this about all the time before Pedersen was Todd Bertuzzi. Like Todd Bertuzzi, everyone remembers like the knockdown move at the net front and the the power forward goals or the big hits or or what have you. But Todd Bertuzzi's biggest value on that West Coast Express line was as a playmaker, right? Like, he'd have those drives. He'd draw three defenders to them. And by the time he got it to Morrison, who popped it over to Naslund, you had one of the best wrist shots in the game with, like, time and space. It was lethal. Absolutely lethal. Honestly, it's it's the, you're right. His gravity is probably the best we've seen in this city in, in 20 years. The other thing is, I think just conceptually in terms of hockey, you haven't found a way to quantify the impact of when a guy has time and space to actually shoot the puck. Mm. Because when you look at, for example, expected goal models, all they all they can, it's all location-based, where it's like the guy t- took the shot from, uh, from here, but... There's no way to account for, all right, how, like, did he have a full second to be able to pick a spot? Did he have a, a defender contesting that shot right there and, and it was a weak wrister? Uh, it, all those nuances, I think you don't, there, there's no way to quantify that. And I think that's an area where Pedersen helps his linemates have more time and space to excel as, as finishers than they would in other environments. Yep, it's, it's a good one. All right, let's, let's get to the inbox. I'm going to save mine and we'll get to it later. But we had some really good suggestions one of them was a general one that i love from brandon in vancouver he says analytics is for facts i test is for context both are critical i think both of our eyes lit up when we got that because that's exactly it without watching the game you can't understand why something happened you need to have your eyes on the game and then also be cognizant of of what the facts can mean particularly when they're in disagreement right like that more than anything the numbers should be a, a gut check on your biases um, as opposed to sort of a guiding light that gets you all the way there independent of being super aware of what's actually happening and how it all works. Yeah, it, it sort of gives you the results of, hey, when this defenseman's on the ice, on the ice or when this line is, is on the ice, here are the results. Now it's up to you to watch the games and understand why things are happening the way they are. And it that's how you understand how you should interpret something, right? So it, it then gives you the context of, okay, this defenseman, his underlying numbers, he may be struggling, but have you accounted for for his partner? The mm. fact that the team team environment around him is is awful, and you see that a lot. Where especially with defensemen, I think that like those are the types of players more so than forwards where you really need to watch and have context for because there's so many examples of situations where guys' results and their underlying numbers drastically change when they move to a uh, a different environment. Like, one of them, for example, I thought, for example, when Chris Tanev, mm. when his free agent contract came up, I looked at his the injuries that he had had, and you you would surface level look at some of his underlying numbers, and even watching the games and, and seeing, seeing, like, okay, like, he's still making oh, a, I was a great all defensive in. player. I was all in on Tanev's next contract is going to be a very risky bet. Yes. I was I all felt in that too, on that take. Right? And so it's like he moves, moves environments to Calgary where it's like all of a sudden – there, he didn't have to take as many hits. Mm. For example, it was um, a situation where he, where there wasn't as much physical wear and tear, new environment, more support around him, and he was able to sort of extend his window. And that contract fared much better than I thought oh, it would. It's have. been a steal. I yeah. mean, I would I would have I would have priced the odds that 
he has his most durable seasons at the age of 30, given all of the injuries he's sustained at this point. Like, I would have put the odds at that at, like, 50 to 1. But they've hit. The, that, that's, been a, that's been a home run contract for, you know, a, a unicorn defensive defenseman. Um, and, and I say all of this knowing full well and having written at the time, like, there is a unique calibration to Hughes and Tanev that shouldn't be undervalued. Tanev is a leader you shouldn't really be able to afford to lose on this group. Like, I thought all of those things too, but I still thought that contract was going to age completely differently than it did. Here's here's a combo that I want to kick to you because I think these are really good. Um, so one is about Heronic, and it's a question. Hydrance, can Heronic on his own help with moving that minus... 32 down or is it about defensive forwards and a, a, a corollary to that we got was about uh, Juleson and Hughes Hughes almost does the job of two defensemen similar to the Sedins did the job of all three forwards put anyone with Hughes and they will do well it, it was exactly the same with the Sedins texts in Kevin from Calgary I think those go together in a really interesting way absolutely I think the the form we're seeing from Hughes now, where he's been able to dominate despite having Juleson, who, by the way, he's acclimated himself really well. He's been totally reliable. But for Hughes to be playing at this elite level despite having an AHL call-up on on the pair next to him against some of the best players in the league playing the minutes that he has, I think that's an important step for this, for this team to have because... You can almost do the Victor Hedman thing, which Tampa mm. for a long time did, where it's like... The uh, Memorial Yan Ruda role. Yeah, Ruda or Bogosian or whoever. It literally did not matter who you put on next to Hedman. Well, uh, but then but then you'd put McDonough or Cernak up there when it mattered. Or Cernak. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, so that allowed Tampa Bay to be able to spread the wealth in terms mm. of their good defensemen and always have one of those guys on the ice. That's where Hughes' level up from let's say like let's say hypothetically you would look at him and go 20 20th best defenseman in the league well that jump from 20th to let's say 10 or, or even higher than that matters because that's the difference between a guy who is in a a number one defenseman if he has a legit partner and a guy who's a number one defenseman and can provide elite value regardless of who he's playing with and that matters for a Canucks team that doesn't have a lot of high end defensemen because then you can all of a sudden not worry that, oh, we need to give Hughes help, then you bring in someone like Hronik, and it's like he can hopefully help stem the tide on the second pair. Raise that floor. Exactly. Um, Canucks eye test take. They will need to solidify the backup position if they plan to keep Seelovs in Abbey. Text in North Creek, Dan. There's no question about that, right? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Eye test take unsigned. Horvat wasn't special. But he was very good. Horvat was very good. Um, I don't know what else to say. Like he's not a superstar level player. I don't think anyone ever yeah. thought he was. He's just a competent, first line capable centerman who's also pretty good offensively and on the power play, but not so good on the penalty kill for whatever reason. Um, I test take Demko struggling to start the city season was incredibly overblown. This team was on par with the Anaheim Ducks with their lack of defense. No one is going to stop bang-bang plays and backdoor tap-ins. Brandon, you know I agree with you. Uh, that was mine here. We got some good Garland's one. Garland ones. 
Garland is a perfect third-line play driver in the modern NHL, easily complemented with the right combo of size and finishing ability. Stats and deployment haven't supported this, but he passes the eye test, especially of late. I actually think there have been some games, uh, the, the Ottawa win in particular, where Garland's ability to key like lengthy offensive zone possessions was at the heart of of Vancouver turning those games in their direction. Like, I think Garland's been fantastic over the past month, and I agree completely with that take. He's also one of the players that's really stood out when we look at the forwards improving defensively and providing a lot more uh, help and value. The number of times I've seen Garland hustling on the mm. back check and, and being able to provide some level of back pressure that helps the defenseman be able to hold the blue line and play tighter gap when defending the rush and funnel guys to the outside. There are a couple of examples in the Stars game, for example, when they were uh, closing out that lead where Garland's pressure on, on, on the back check really helped the defenseman out. Garland just competes. So here's a trio from Tanbeer. So this is always an adventure, but we'll see. We'll see what he's got in his bag of, of takes. Vasily Podkolzin needs more games in the AHL. I think he needs more minutes at the top of an NHL lineup. He needs confidence. Yeah. It's it's so interesting with for, with him because I, I don't know what to make of him. Honestly, like I've been scratching my head. I've recently. been impressed in stretches and then I've also been like there's nothing there in stretches and I think it comes down to confidence cuz he came get back from the AHL, and it was like he was building good games on top of yeah. one another. And then his ice time gets cut, and he kind of disappears. I just think if you want to know what you have in Vasily Podkolzin, like give him a stretch of ten games with incredibly consistent usage and like line mates that he can help complement. Like uh, that's what I want to see. He also puts a lot of pressure on himself, right? Which is like I had this conversation with him last week where. He said that when he got sent down to sent down to Abbotsford, honestly, the biggest thing that he was working on was the mental game yeah, and really just being able to yeah, like he put so much pressure and weight on weight on himself that giving him a run like that and being like, hey, don't worry if you make a mistake, just like, go, just you'll, go, you'll stay. throw some hits, play a heavy game, and and bring your motor, and that's it. Bring your motor and rev it. That's especially it. in the Di Giuseppe spot, right? Like you know what Di Giuseppe is. Why? Why? I mean, I'm all for Di Giuseppe being part of this team next year. Like I've been. I'm like a, the charter member of the D. Giuseppe is an NHL player and a better fourth line option than anyone else on this team. Um, like literally, I started the club, but we know we don't need to know more. Like build up Vasily Podkolzin's um, overall uh, confidence, and then and then take a look, especially with the stakes being so low down the stretch here. Brisebois is the Canucks' best left shot option on the bottom pair. I think it's Willanin. I think it's Willanin, too. Um, and Connor Garland is a fourth-line player who gets PP two minutes on a winning team. I disagree with that. Um, I test take, here's another Pod Colson one from Josh and Victoria. Pod Colson is one of the most noticeable four-check and wall guys on this team. And get, Wall guys. We always, whenever a new coach comes into town, we get new terminology. Um, and gives a huge boost to his line every shift. However, the counting stats have not followed suit, and his goal and point totals are very underwhelming. Partially true. I think that's partially true. Where you do notice that a lot, especially there have been games recently where when he's on the back check, he's able to disrupt plays, he's able to win battles. But there are other games, like the Arizona one, for example, where him and Kratsov consistently had issues uh, defensively, and it was more so with the puck. I think Pod Colson's inconsistency sometimes is 
uh, when it comes to his role in the breakout, where a lot of times it feels like he gets the puck at the defensive half wall and he misses his pass and turns the puck over. Or he's just not able to execute that play, which can sometimes lead the Canucks into spending more time in the defensive end. But yeah, there's been flashes. I think he's got potential there. Uh, he definitely needs to work on the consistency, though. Um, we got a lot of Myers ones. Um, one from Tablesaw James has to be read. You couldn't get a true appreciation for Myers flipping the puck over the glass under pressure in the defensive zone unless you watched the games. But here's here's one I actually really like from Todd Has Bad Takes. Tyler Myers is the physical defensive forward that this team needs. Physical defensive forward. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he, like the Brent Burns thing. Yeah, you move you move a guy to forward, see what happens. I don't hate it. I'd at least have time to watch it. It, it. He'd be a monster on the forecheck. Do you think he has enough foot speed for that? I I, I think he can. I think he's a fast skater once he gets moving. Yeah. I think it's an acceleration thing. Mm-hmm. Like he he's not uh, he's not got a high end first step, but in full flight, like Myers can carry the puck. Myers is a very strong skater. Anyway, I got time. I, I for just want to I just want to see that so we can get him net front. Yeah, I want to see him me too. Just creating yeah, the, old, the old John Scott Zdeno Chara role. All right. Well, that's uh, that's the eye test takes. Uh, there's a couple more. There's a couple more here. Maybe we'll touch on them in the fourth segment, depending on what we have to talk about with John Wall, who's up next, former Canucks uh, senior director of analytics and hockey operations. Uh, we'll also hear from Rick Tockett a little bit later in the show. That's what's on tap on Canucks Talk on Sportsnet. 650. Big opinions and good bets. It's the People's Show with Bick Nizar. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back for Hour 2 of Canucks Talk. I'm your host, Thomas Strance, joined, of course, by Harmon Dial, filling in for Jamie Dodd, who will be back on Friday. Canucks Talk, of course, brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team. Visit avenuemachinery.ca and douglaslakeequipment.com for more info. And, of course, a reminder that today is the Canucks for Kids Fund Telethon game. As the Canucks host the Vegas Golden Knights, you'll see the Telethon this evening on Sportsnet. Donations can be made now, and everyone, everyone who donates before midnight tonight will be entered to win a brand new 2023 Toyota Corolla Hybrid. So get to it. Donations can be made online now at canucks.com slash telethon. We'll be joined shortly by John Wall, the former capologist and analytics maestro of the Canucks organization. I believe he's on the line now. Uh, Jay Wall, how are you, my friend? I'm good, Thomas. How are you? We're doing well. We're just uh, sitting up in the broadcast gondola awaiting a Canucks Golden Knights contest. Now, John, you manage the cap for an NHL team for an awfully long time, including, um, you know, collaborating with Lawrence Gilman on uh, this team's cap management uh, during the 2010-11 season, uh, breaking a variety of rules and and finding a bunch of loopholes that the NHL eventually had to close. I'm curious to ask you this question. 
we're probably looking at an expansion class where both Vegas and Seattle will make the playoffs this year, and both will have made the playoffs within the first two years of existence. Among the reasons for why this has happened, where would you rank the ability to start out with a fresh slate from from a cap perspective? The ability to sort of fill in 81.5 million, no mistakes, no inefficient deals on the books, that, that fresh slate factor, how crucial was that? for what Seattle think, and Vegas have been able to do. Yeah, I mean, I think it was very crucial. Something I sort of started talking about in, in Vegas's year, where you started looking at their roster and you realize they really didn't have any young players that were sort of working their way up, or, or very few. They didn't have any older players that had, you know, um, that had gone past their sort of uh, prime. So all of a sudden you had this situation where you've got the majority of their players right in their prime, right in the in the area of their contract where they're actually being paid what they deserve, uh, what they're worth. So I think it's a huge difference for teams. And you can see the challenges Vegas has had as they've had to start signing their players and re-signing players to try to keep that team together and keep it, you know, at, at the top here. And with Seattle, who didn't quite enjoy the same instantaneous success, you saw them be able to add in free agency, obviously, but also do things like acquiring Oliver Bjorkstrand for a song. Um, are there lessons from this that you think other teams should take in terms of the value uh, of cap space and how it can be harnessed to improve quick? Well, I, I feel like you're just approaching the, the same question in a different way. I mean, we've talked about it. I think <laughs> cap space has a huge amount of value in the market. I think the flexibility to be able to acquire players, to be able to leverage that cap space to acquire players is huge. And I think, again, if you go through almost every team in the league, there are players that you can have for free, good NHL players that you can have for free if you could take on their contracts. So I do think that having that flexibility and the ability to, to add players at the right time is of huge value. Hey, Jay, well, over uh, a couple of years ago, your administration helped oversee the transition of the AHL team from Utica to Abbotsford. Do you think we're underrating the impact that that can have and, and the slight competitive edge it uh, it can give a, a team like the Canucks moving forward? Just because I think of examples like Nils Hoaglander right now uh, going down to Abbotsford, I imagine that's a much easier transition for him or, or when Pod Colson went down for some of these Europeans you know, just being able to sort of stay in the lower mainland area as opposed to going all the way to Utica and, and it's a much um, much easier environment for them to develop their games. Or even this morning I had a chat with Sheldon Dries who's uh, chipped in with 10 goals and he said that one of the deciding factors for why he came to Vancouver was that the farm team was, was so close and, and that was a draw. And imagine it's also a draw uh, for players like Christian Olanin, which... You know, maybe this season it hasn't had, you know, a huge impact because, you know, the, the Canucks aren't uh, in a spot to be competing for the playoffs. But those small margins, when you have depth guys that can contribute when injuries and, and situations like that happen, that could really matter potentially for next season. So I'm, I'm curious how you view the importance of and value of having Abbotsford here. I, I think it's hugely important, Harm. I think, you know, the ownership deserves a lot of credit for, for making that happen. Uh, we started seeing the difference almost immediately in the first year where players that maybe we didn't have a chance at in free agency all of a sudden are looking at our organization and, and, and seeing that as a really good opportunity. It's a good opportunity to be close to the NHL team. It's also a good opportunity to, you know, if you've got a young family, to know you're going to be settled in one area and you're not going to be traveling back and forth. Some of these players mm -hmm. travel a lot and it does, it does make it better. So we started seeing 
you know, local players that all of a sudden, you know, we're looking at, you know, who are from the lower mainland, looking at this opportunity is a huge opportunity. So that happened almost immediately. Uh, you also have the advantage of just the cap and planning your roster, especially, you know, post deadline where you're looking at emergency recalls and stuff like that. You're able to get yourself down closer to the emergency situation without having to worry about playing shorthanded because generally your team is much closer. So it gives you so many options sort of in managing your cap, managing your roster. You know, you've got management and coaches much closer. You feel like you're more part of the group. And then also we, we opened up a huge interest in, in players from this area that wanted to play in Vancouver, Abbotsford, have their families here and, uh, and have that support. So I think it's a great move by ownership and, and it really looks like it's paying off so far. Is there a competitive edge or a developmental edge, Jay Wall, when you're able to go to a player and you're only sending them an hour down the highway versus sending them to the Mohawk Valley? Like yeah, it feels, think, it, it, does it feel less like punishment almost? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it, it it does help, and I think you have to remember these players have, you know, generally have a, a partner. They may have kids. They may have mm. pets, uh, cars. You know, moving back and forth across the country is a huge issue. Um, we tried our best to manage it and to help the players through it as best we can. But it definitely is a, a different experience when you're just, you know, sending a, a player down, you know, down the highway. And then it also, again, just gives the team so much flexibility. I mean, you can imagine the challenges trying to plan and predict IR and recalls and injury stuff when, you know, you're a day, a day and a half away sometimes uh, with travel versus having to just make a, you know, book a car and have the player come in. Jay, well, we saw Aiden McDonough at Morning Skate today, and I, you know, was talking to a colleague in the stands, and they were like, when do you think we'll see him? And I suggested to them that maybe not until there's the little Y on the standings page indicating that the Canucks have been formally eliminated from the playoffs, just based on my experience of how coaches tend to manage uh, a roster at this time of year and, and, and the sort of sense that you want to give the players that they're still fighting for something. Um what are some of the roster management decisions? What goes into making some of those decisions that fans who haven't spent the length of time inside the game that you have um, might be surprised to learn impact how we see a roster managed at this time of the year? Yeah, I mean, I think the one the one thing people have to you know appreciate as well is you know everyone on the team that's playing every night is you know they're all competitive, they all want to win, but they're also generally playing for their own futures and when you've got the number of you know players on expiring contracts and players that have come up from Abbotsford you really owe them you know the right to to keep going a little bit and playing you know when they are playing well I mean I've seen some of the reports of some of the the players that have replaced veteran players and you know they're doing a, a really good job so I think you also have those players to sort of you know show some respect to and then you're also trying to you know manage manage injuries a little bit uh, and then also want to potentially see some players that you haven't seen this year or give some players a chance to play. Uh, The McDonough one, obviously, because he doesn't count as a recall, gives the team some flexibility of having an extra player uh, in the the mix. But on the downside, it actually means they have an extra player in the mix, which puts them one further player away from going into emergency, which might mean that a player in Abbotsford who people want to see it does make it a little harder for them to actually get into games at the end of the season. 
Jay, well, with um, Quinn Hughes down the stretch here, it's been a huge conversation in terms of uh, the level of dominance we've seen from him the last few months, especially uh, now that he's kind of doing it next to Noah Juleson, who's um, an AHL recall. Do you view Hughes as the sort of player where obviously in an ideal world he'd have an, another Chris Tanev type partner, but in a world where it's it won't be easy for the Canucks to add another high-end right-shot top-four defenseman after they've already brought Hironik in, do you view Hughes as the sort of player where it's like he can carry a pair no, no matter who he really plays with? And if so, how would that shape the way the Canucks should view in the short term um, overhauling the blue line and, and, and what some of their needs are? I mean, I think if you look at you know the history of, of Stanley Cup winners, and I know I'm not jumping ahead and putting the Canucks in this group, but you know generally they need to have an elite level defenseman, and that's sort of the the one you know you can get away with some other other holes in your lineup, but an elite level defenseman is generally a key key to that. And you know, seeing what what Quinn's doing right now, you know, when we were looking at him potentially you know in his draft year and looking at drafting him, it, it was the ability to sort of defend from the offensive blue line and defend by moving pucks out. And, you know, we talk about taking pucks from danger to safety. And I think Quinn does that. He's getting better at that. And I think as he's evolving, it's sort of changing how the team can basically build their D around him, knowing he can play close to 30 minutes a night and is going to, you know, give the team a lot of, you know, uh, clean exits and puck transition and all that stuff. John, I saw you were having a Twitter exchange and mentioned that the, when Quinn Hughes fell to seven, the speed with which your club and you specifically put his name into the system um, was record time, like five, five yeah. six seconds. Um, yeah. Can you take us through what it was like at that table as the Cockney pick happened, as the draft board begins to go your way? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's like that almost every year a bit where you have sort of some players in mind that you think you want to target. And, you know, it was no different from, from the PD pick where things started to move around. And I think that one we felt more confident he'd be available. Um, and when he was available, obviously, the excitement was, was significant. And then with Quinn, it was just, you know, as these picks started coming together, the, the, you know, the potential started to become more real. And then when, um, when Detroit made their pick in front of us, it, uh, yeah, I mean, there was probably some, you know, some fist pumping. And, you know, we're trying to keep a bit of a, a poker face at the table but like I said I don't think it took you know enough time just to basically double check that I was putting the right player in the system to make sure we were getting them to to make that pick and you know we were we were really excited to to get him and obviously it's been a you know a great pick and is going to be you know probably go down as one of the all-time you know great Canuck defensemen. Were you close to the Detroit table was there anyone like trying to hey guys like don't be too excited keep it down <laughs> no, no, nothing like that. You know, you hear stories over time of, of guys kind of looking over and every time a team takes the player you want right in front of you, you sort of think that, you know, maybe they're they're keeping an eye on what you're doing or something. But no, we, you know, we just, you know, again, we've got our list. And, you know, when he when he was there, it was it was really exciting for us. Uh, Jay, well, with Vasily Podkolzin, there's it, it's obviously been a sophomore sort of slump type season for him. How do you view his development so far, and what type of upside do you still think uh, that he may have? You know, I, I, to be honest, Harmer, I haven't really watched a ton of the the games. Um, I've sort of, you know, got my own thing going up here, and um, you know, just kind of follow it, sort of on, you know, 
the, the highlights and stuff like that. The one thing about uh, about Vasily for me is, you know, having dealt with a lot of players over the years, his his desire to play and his desire to do what's needed to play is, you know, is, is as good as anybody. And especially, you know, I know sometimes players from that that er- that that um, area get a bit of a, a bad rap or people question them, but, but he's been incredible since day one. I mean, he, you know, we work closely together on his, on his visas and, and vaccines and all the stuff that we had to do. And, you know, we, we had some stuff that we had him to do that, you know, that, that took time and, and took a lot of effort and he never hesitated. And I knew really early with him that this is a player who really wants to be in the NHL. Um, you know, we were asking him to, to take trains and fly and do all this stuff to get, you know, different things done. And it was always, you know, let's go tomorrow. And, uh, you know, he, he, he just stepped up and did all that. And you see stuff like that and you know sort of deep down that this is a player who has a drive and, and really wants to be an NHL player. Jonathan, how do you view... As, as a, you know, a, a man of data and a guy who's been with this or, or spent a lot of time with the Canucks organization over the years, uh, including during the uh, Mike Gillis era with the human performance department and, and so on and so forth, um, how do you view the sustainability of playing really big minutes as star-level players? How careful do teams need to be in managing uh, their best players' workload over the course of an 82-game season, in your view? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think it depends on the player. I mean, some players are just, you know, are just able to, to manage the minutes and it depends on their, you know, their conditioning level and body type and the way they play. Um, you know, if they're getting, you know, power play minutes versus PK minutes, you know, yep. ozone minutes versus diesel minutes. I think it really just depends on the player. And you can really sort of see, you know, watching them if they're if they're falling off. Um, you know, whereas obviously you see a guy like Quinn and, you know, just his, his motor and his endurance and his ability to, you know, to process lactic acid and all the stuff that allows him to play those minutes. It just shows that he's not, he's not falling off. It, it actually benefits his game. It looks like. Yeah. He, he has the look of a player who could play all day. And, you know, he said it today. He was like, you know, I keep telling you guys, I'm going to have my best seasons between the ages of 26 and 28. And, and I sort of, watch Quinn and I always think of Brian Campbell just because similar body type similar mobility both lefties Hughes maybe a little bit more dynamic offensively but um like Campbell might have peaked at 35 (laughs) I'm not sure that Quinn Hughes is gonna necessarily be a, a normal aging curve in terms of his peak years being 22 to 26 yeah I mean he you know the other thing with Quinn is he's just got this you know this mindset I think and you know you got to give credit to coaches over time that have helped him sort of develop that where he just he just goes and I think I remember back we were in Detroit in his draft year and we saw him play uh, a very early game in his season one of his first college games I believe Mm -hmm. and he was on the power play he was bringing the puck up the middle of the ice and got his pocket picked and they went in I think they scored a shorthanded goal against for him and it was you know as a rookie and a highly touted player you're it was interesting to see how he'd handle it and literally the next shift he did the exact same thing went right up the middle again and this time pulled it off and kind of went end to end and got a, a really good entry and set up the power play and it was one of those things for his mindset where he just believes in himself and believes in himself and just knows he can do it Jay, well when it comes to 
the Canucks' sort of challenge in terms of taking the next step. It's really about, as we've been looking at, Pedersen's dominance, uh, the the stark difference of the team's goal, goal differential results when Hughes is on the ice versus when he's on the bench. It's really about sort of improving this team's baseline so they're not uh, a tire fire when those guys are, are on the bench, which on the one hand you can go from a positive standpoint and say, well, all you need is, is competence in those minutes, that you're, you're just trying to fill out a competent supporting cast, which shouldn't be too challenging. But then on the other hand, you look at, you have probably have limited resources to do it when you look at their cap situation. Uh, how, how do you view the challenge for this organization in terms of taking uh, the next step and in, in sort of the idea of you've already kind of got uh, some star talent and you're trying to fill um, fill co- competence in the other parts of your lineup? Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at the, you know, the key parts of building a team, you've got, you, you start down the middle. I mean, you've got, you know, probably, uh, you know, an, an elite or soon to be elite center you've got an elite defenseman and you've got a, arguably an elite goalie. And those are three pieces that are very hard to find. And once you do have those, you can, you know, build around that. You do have to start, you do have to start getting careful and not, you know, so the Canucks specifically, but as, as you start building, you get to a point where you start to need to build the right pieces, not just the right players or not just good players. So you start having to make sure that you're building complementary complementary uh, lines and players and matchups. And I think, you know, it sounds like with, with some of the, the players that the Canucks have brought in, uh, Joshua and Juleson and DiGiuseppe and, and guys like that, is they're giving them a lot of utility. And all of a sudden they're starting to have, you know, players playing in, in good roles and filling minutes. And, you know, it, it seems like they're sort of on a bit of a, you know, a bit of a good run right now. But as you want to start building your team, you know, into a, a better team, a competitive team, and an elite team. That's when you start trying to find very specific pieces to fill those holes. How tricky is it for an organization to navigate garbage time in a season where we all rationally and probabilistically know what's in the best interests of a team at this time of year if they're not going to make the playoffs? Lose as much as you can, up your draft lottery odds. Uh, get that extra sort of advantage of an earlier pick in every round throughout the draft. And yet, obviously, it's 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 rarely that simple in the NHL, is it? J-Wall, we got you? Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, you're just cutting out a bit there, Thomas. Sorry, I no, I just, I just stopped with it's rarely that simple in the NHL, is it? It, it is rarely that simple. And that, you know, again, you've got, you know, competitive players that are going out doing their thing. You've got... You know, again, especially, you know, everyone's, you know, I read and see stuff, how excited people are about these young players that are stepping in. Willannon's another one. But again, you have to remember, like, these players are playing for their livelihoods and for next year. So, again, it is exciting to have these, you know, players that they've brought up. But I know there's there's been times where, you know, they talk about, um, you know, the man games lost due to injury. And sometimes we joke about, sometimes you have, like, a man games gained due to injury where you've got, you know, players that have come in and are actually playing, you know, better than you thought they would. And they're actually helping the team win when, you know, you would have thought maybe the team would have struggled with certain players being injured or being traded or being out. John, thank you so much for your insight. I loved the scouting Hughes story. That's incredible stuff. Uh, We appreciate your time and your insight as always, my friend. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure, guys. Anytime.
Thanks, Jay. Well, we'll we'll get to more Quinn Hughes stuff. We'll hear from Rick Tockett. We'll keep setting up tonight's Canucks game against Vegas on the other side of the break. And of course, uh, I remind you one more time before we go to break that, well, one more time until we come back from break, that today is the Canucks for Kids Fund telethon game. So tune in tonight and make a donation right now. Canucks.com slash telethon. Um, if you make a donation before midnight, you will be entered to win a brand new 2023 Toyota Corolla Hybrid. So support a good cause and stick with us. We'll be back after the break on Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. It's the final segment of Canucks Talk today. I'm your host, Thomas Drance, joined, of course, by Harmon Dial, filling in for Jamie Dodd. Canucks Talk, brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota All-Star team. Visit douglaslakeequipment.com and avenuemachinery.ca for more intel on our fine sponsors who bring the show to you every day. Um, additionally, of course, tonight is the Canucks for Kids Fund Telethon when the Canucks host the Vegas Golden Knights on Sportsnet. And, and of course, you can listen in, too, on this very station, the home of the Canucks Sportsnet 650. Donations can be made now, and everyone who donates before midnight today will be entered to win a brand-new 2023 Toyota Corolla Hybrid. Donations can be made online now at Canucks.com slash telethon. So it's a Canucks game day, and Rick Tockett met with the media today. Figured we'd hear from the Canucks head coach and then continue to set up this game in addition to giving you an update on Canucks plans for Pride Night, the club issuing uh, a formal statement through to both me and Patrick Johnston, who both clearly were inquiring about the same matter uh, at Morning Skate today. But first, let's hear from the Canucks head coach, Rick Tockett. It's actually a pretty good skate. The... Uh... We've been just doing the same drills the last couple of weeks just to keep it more familiar. Nice to see Heronic back out there with the group. Yeah, it's the first time I've seen him really uh, with a bunch of people on the ice other than Yogi, our skills guy. But, yeah, he's he's itching to go. So probably he's day-to-day. Good chance he'll be in Thursday. People look at your team from the periphery and they wonder, yeah, they're winning, but because you know how social media can impact yeah. coverage in this town. Uh, you played on some teams that, that weren't that great. Yeah. Uh, was there ever talk of tank in a room when, when so much can still be accomplished down the stretch, especially right now with this team, when you look at guys like Krasov and Pods and Amon and how much they can still grow in these last 13 games? No, I've never heard – you know, I played 18 years, never heard of that. I've been on some, yeah, some tough teams. But, uh, but um, you know, you sometimes then the team you see, the, you know, right on the wall, you'll see a veteran not playing, they'll, they'll put a young guy, even though the young guy's not playing well. I, I didn't like that. I think you play guys that deserve to play. Um, I think that sets a culture. But that saying that, you still got to get guys out in situations to see what they can do under pressure. How much satisfaction are you taking from the way the guys are, are grasping <clears throat> the system? And, and really, the streak that you're on here speaks yeah. a lot to yeah. that. Yeah, we're hanging in there. Like, you know, we're not the perfect team. And there's some, you know, obviously the LA game, we were under siege. But the, even though we're under siege, there were some times there they had a lot of possession time. They had some shots, even if he has Denver, that he saw those. You know, it's it's the back doors. It's the, you know, where you got to make three or four saves. Uh, those four breakaways a game. I think we've got we got that s- smell out of our game. Like, I don't see that as much. Saying that, 
you know, uh, we still got to make sure we got to, you know, that trip, I thought we could have been a little bit more grittier, you know, things like that. We, we have to get better at as an organization, things like that. But in the meantime, I, I, I like the attitude of the guys. I mean, they want to play hard every night. Did you have an answer now to why you were so sleepy last Thursday? In Arizona? Probably five-game winning streak. Sometimes you think, you know, you're high on the hog, whatever, you know, it happens. It happens to Colorado. Yeah, they won the cup. I've seen games where they, you know, they're sleepy the next night. But the, the good part is the good teams, they don't let it happen two, three, four games in a row. So that's the next step, their maturity. Viewers in the U.S. obviously remember you as a player, but then they really mm-hmm. got to know you as a broadcaster in the last couple of years. Uh they would probably want to know, do you miss it? Are you glad you're doing this? What's the, what's the transition been like for you? Well, I, I, well, I loved it doing the TNT. It was awesome. It was, you know, first-class operation. But, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, the hockey world, you want to be compete. You want to strategize. You want to, you know, you want a chance to, to build something. <clears throat> with a, you know, we have a bunch of great guys here. And, uh, you know, try to turn things. You know, you, I want to be part of the solution, try to turn things around. So what better way to do it as a head coach? What's the biggest challenge, Rick, taking over a mid-flight like this for you? Well, introducing certain system stuff. Um, I don't think you can throw a lot of stuff. You know, you know that's the one dangerous thing <clears throat> that I, I came in here. I didn't want to throw a lot of stuff, and I think it helped that way. But there's some more stuff I want to do. Um, and like I said, I'm lucky. I got, you know, the staff I got has really helped, you know, really helped my, you know, my transition, um, so I give them a lot of credit, and and the players buy in. They they've been buying into what we're doing, you know. And I, I know the whispers is sustainable. Uh, you know, it happened last. Like it, it, those things, you can't let permeate in your head. You just got to do your thing every day, stay in the moment. Based on what you showed this morning, it looks like Breeze Ball might go in for. Burrows, if that is the case, is it just to get three left shot, three right shot? Or like- yeah, I, I'm a. I like the righty lefty thing. I do like that, but you know, you still who's the more you know, talented guy you want in the lineup too. But, um, yeah, Breeze didn't play because of a healthy scratch. He was just a little sore on, on, on certain parts of his uh, of his body. So, uh, and Burrows is the type of guy, like, he he was out for three weeks one time, not a healthy scratch, and came in and gave us, like, some good games. Like, I, I think that's – to have that uh, is, a, is a testament to those type of players, to be able to sit out three weeks and then come and play it and, and be solid out there. So – you know, that means you're you're building a uh, you know some depth on your defense. Yeah, you know, he's going to be here. Fairly, I I don't know when exactly, but I know one thing. You know, I'm going to make sure it's a couple of days before because you know we want to fly his parents, and so I better give him a 48 hour you know, give give him some chance. But yeah, no, I want he's a he's actually looked pretty good out there, so he'll he'll get in the lineup. Does he need a proper? Yeah, we haven't. Pra- that's a that's a great point. We haven't practiced here in two weeks. We haven't had a full practice because of the schedule, and, and some guys have been playing a lot. So uh, he'll get a practice tomorrow, probably another practice, and then you know maybe look for like you know Chicago game, one of those games. You said a few minutes ago, uh, playing the guys who deserve to play about your young players. Does that kind of merit also apply to ice time to your best players? Do you feel like you owe it to them if they're doing what you ask? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I when I first came here, I mean, I want to overplay guys, but, you know, like these guys are craving it. You know, we're creating, we're trying to create something here. I owe it to them. You know, if it's, uh, you know, we're trying to win a game, I got, I'm not going to have those guys on the bench. Um, and there's some young guys here. They got to understand that they have to earn their minutes too. You know, if they're not getting the puck out, two or three shifts in a row, you know, um, 
there's got to be some kind of consequences. It's not just you're a young guy, you, you get to go out there. So, um, and the, the, for the most part, they've been buying in too. Like, I got to give them a lot of credit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I got to, you know, obviously, Husey's playing a ton. I mean, he keeps looking back at footy even after he plays 30, 40 minutes. He still wants out there. But he's, um, you know, the guys like him, you got to be careful to give them the rest for sure. Uh, Kratzy for me is uh, he's got a lot of talent and um, he needs a form. Uh, he, this he needs to utilize this four months. He's got to get a little bit bigger and just exert himself a little bit more. I, I really liked his first game when he first came here. If he can play like that, you know we got, you know we got, you know I think he's a gem in the hiding. But we got to we got to find that. You know we got to get that thing out of the, the ground and shine him up a bit. I think he has to bring a little bit more energy and attitude. And, I, and he's got a great attitude. I shouldn't say that. But more energy. And I think that's summer training for me. I think he, I think if he has four months of good summer training, he can be somebody that can really be a skilled guy that can, that can score. Is that some of that coming from a place where he didn't really have a role coming to a new place? And <clears> opportunity <throat> can't really, he's just mentally reset himself. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. Like I don't know where he was in the summer last year, where he trains. Like I mean, I like this him to be under our watch. You know, I, I you know I, I don't believe in, you know. Was that we were out? Was it April fifteenth, April sixteenth? Hey, it actually means and hey, we'll see you September fifteenth. I, I don't think winning teams can do that. I think you have to be under watch. He's got to be under watch. How he trains, skates. You know, I'd like to hopefully convince him to stay in Vancouver quite a bit to train um, with some other guys. How much does that apply to Stadnika, who's been in and out of your lineup? What do you need to see from him? And is he another one of those? This is a big <clears throat> summer type. Yeah, he's another one too. I mean, I just there's some guys are ahead of him right now. You know, and. You know, it's, it's just the way the world is sometimes. You know, you, when you get in there, and I know it's fair, unfair because you get in and out of the lineup, but, uh, you know, sometimes I just think he's light on the puck. You know, I think he's got he's to really get stronger with, with puck decisions and, and the puck. But, uh, but the one thing is his work ethic's there. You know, I, I, I will say that, and, he, and he, he, you know, he cares. Do you like him better on the wall? I, I honestly don't know. I, I haven't been here long enough to know if he's a center or a winger, right winger. I don't know. I, I actually, a couple of weeks ago when he did play with Allman and, uh, and um, was it JD? I mean, uh, Dakota. I, I thought they, uh, he had a couple of good games there. One of your veterans just described you as, he said he's honest, but you know he's, he has your back at the same time. Do you like that description? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I that's why as a player, but I mean, you try to be that guy. Like you know, uh, you try to know these guys. That, you know, I care about them. And uh, but if we're not doing the right things, I mean, we had to, we got to, even myself. I have to be accountable. Like you know, the, or my coaches make me accountable. So I think if you're not making each other accountable, um, then you're gonna things are gonna get loose. Um, and I always tell the players before I leave, they leave, make sure they they, they get whatever problem off their head. I was always a play. If I, I know when I played, if I had stuff in my head, I, I wasn't. I stunk the next game. So that's where I think they understand. I want them to understand that, you know, I got their back. If they got a problem, come and talk to me, and we'll figure it out. Rick Tockett on a variety of topics, including Philip Heronik's availability. Sounds like Thursday is an option. A little bit sooner than I'd expected, but uh, consistent, perhaps with, you know, the, the three to four week timeline that that we've sort of been mentioning. On this program, um, additionally, sounding like Aiden McDonough might make his debut well before this team is mathematically eliminated uh, against one of those teams, referencing Chicago. <laughs> so uh, pick a softer game on the schedule and, and circle that. That might be Aiden McDonough's debut. Rick Tockett saying he's looked good out there 
in the morning skates. I thought he looked great today. I was watching him closely. First time getting a chance to see him with NHL players. He had a wicked wrist shot that beat Thatcher Demko on, on a two-on-one drill. Just a beauty shot. Um, a sign of what he can do. Uh, we'll see how the foot speed looks in NHL game action. Here's one other thing that stood out to me. You know, when you're a reporter, right, you're trying to figure out how key decision makers actually feel, right? Not what they're saying publicly, how they actually feel. I think it's pretty clear that neither Kratsov or Stanika have impressed Tockett based on the lineup decisions that he's made. So this was almost the first time that we've had a chance to hear Tockett react to describing struggling players, right? And over over the next, like, when, once the pressure is on this team next year, um, you know, as time passes and he spends more time as the head coach of the Vancouver Canucks, like, it's going to become a thing that is regular. But for now, it's still new. Ever since Rick Tockett took over, this team's been on a snow day. Like, it's been wins and good performance. There haven't been a lot of negative sort of performances or spots. Every guy you've thrown in has excelled. Uh, Juleson, right? Like, everybody who he's needed to rely on has kind of done their job and and shown pretty well. And so I I felt like this was one of the first opportunities to get it. And do you remember, like, we used to, like, laugh about the Travis Green size? Like, the, oh, or the, eh, you know, like, you had, like, different size, and you could tell, did he like a player, did he not like a player? Uh, Or if you couldn't tell, you'd, you'd guess. Um, and then, it, it, you know, the biggest tell was, I thought he was just okay. It means it was a terrible performance. Awful, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't think we learned anything about Tockett's tells there, aside from maybe if he's torturing a metaphor, it's a bad sign. Right? The the hidden gems <laughs> metaphor. If Tockett starts torturing a metaphor from now on, I think I'm going to have my, um, my ears perked. <laughs> I'm going to put that guy on watch. Well, he was just pretty honest, right? Like, it... Anybody who, let's say, hadn't watched the Vancouver Canucks, right? Mm-hmm. Hypothetical. They were just randomly listening into this type of press conference. You could tell that, that those guys are on the outside sort of looking in. Uh, you also know specifically what, like, where those shortcomings are for these players, right? Like with Studnika, for example, he's a thinner guy. Talk it's spoken a lot about the importance of winning board battles, and, and he, he's clearly going to want some size on his wing so you can understand that's the biggest thing working against him moving forward, especially as we've seen somebody like Phil Giuseppe, who brings more of that size, brings more of that forechecking presence, really excel and get a lineup opportunity. There's clearly been... Uh, Giuseppe has lapped Stadnik in the, in the depth chart, which wasn't oh, yeah. the case, uh, obviously, under Boudreau. Uh, with Kravtsov as well, the energy thing, right? And yep. it's been interesting to see him play because in a couple of his first games you'd see that, okay, this guy's using his size to win a couple battles in the forecheck, but it just doesn't happen consistently enough, especially in the defensive end. So I think that's an area where it's like you've got the the physical frame to, to win those battles that Tockett needs guys to win, but you don't see that work rate high enough on a mm. consistent enough basis. Well, it, you know, the, the battle for minutes on the wing coming into next season is going to be fascinating, right? Because... First off, we'll see what happens in the offseason regarding Besser, regarding Connor Garland, maybe even regarding JT Miller. But no matter what, like there's almost no amount of moves you can make that is going to leave this team with like serious holes 
or like a top nine wing job that's not fiercely competitive in, in terms of the bodies in the NHL and in the AHL. I mean, just just look over the names: Beauvillier, Kuzmenko. You've got Mikheyev, right? You've got the three guys that I listed potentially, or at least two and a half, depending on how you consider JT Miller. But you've also got Dakota Joshua, who I think's made a pretty decent case for himself being a third line wing type. You'd think he'd at least be in the mix. You've got Phil DiGiuseppe, who's going to have the inside track as, you know, someone that has clearly endeared themselves to Rick Tockett. You're probably going to have Sheldon Dries, who's going to finish this season with, what, 13 goals, like almost almost 25 points, uh, is an option on the power play, gives you an honest effort every night. And then you've got Linus Carlson, who's and Niels crushed Hoaglander. it. And you've got Niels Hoaglander. And you've got Vasily Colson, And you've got Stanika and Kratsov. I mean... It is an embarrassment of talent. And, and you know, you think about the work rate comment. You think about the wall work comment, the, the wall guy stuff that you sort of just got into with regards to Studnika and Kratsov. Like, Tockett still hasn't really seen a lot of Niels Hoaglander. What do you think Coach Wall Guys is going to think once he sees this little fire, fire hydrant winning every battle along the wall? You think you think he's gonna you think he's gonna like that player? I think he's gonna like him, especially because Talkit. I think when he speaks about wall like wall guys, that reminds me so much of Travis Green, and obviously they're pretty close to each other as friends. Travis Green loved Niels Hoaglander, like immediately yeah. brought this guy over from Sweden, and it was like, I I'm like gonna him play better the in top my top six, six than Louis Erickson and and Jake Vertanen, especially on a line with Horvat and Pearson that was going up against top competition. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's a huge endorsement. And Talkett mentioned, I think it was last week, that he had gone to, or, or maybe the week before, that he'd gone to Abbotsford. Well, and he brought up Hoaglander specifically yeah. as, like, the guy he was most impressed with. And then he, like, name-checked a couple other guys that he knew he was supposed to be impressed with. But with Hoaglander, you could tell it was different, right? Yeah. You, you could tell there was a difference in tone. Um, you know, if you're if you're a Stanika, if you're a Kratsov, if you're a Pod Coles. Right, and you're and you're hearing the coach talk about your game in this way, like, you know, if Hoaglander's still on this team next year, like that's the final boss because he's going to come up and win every board battle, and uh, you know, based on how Talkit has expressed his philosophy of what matters for winning hockey games, I, I just I just think that's going to be a very tough guy. Um, to like beat out for one of these jobs it's it's really the competition on the wings in particular is going to be fascinating next season and there's almost no amount of subtractions from the roster that can happen in offseason moves that will change the fact that you're going to have you know probably 12 to 15 guys with a credible shot at playing games uh, competing for eight jobs in the opening night lineup it's going to be fantastic to see before we get to 10 minutes of positivity to end the show, I just want to give an update. So, obviously, we all know that uh, ever since the, the Prover, uh, Ivan Provorov decided not to wear a pride jersey at the Philadelphia Flyers game, we've seen teams approach uh, wearing pride night jerseys in the warm-up skate in a variety of different manner, um, in different ways. We've seen teams scrap it, as the New York Rangers have done. We've seen additional players uh, as like James Reimer in San Jose over the weekend uh, decide not to take the ice for warm-up skate. Um, there has been a, a fair bit of pressure uh, to, uh, from players uh, out of Russia, in particular, as there was with the Minnesota Wild, that have influenced how those teams approached uh, the event themselves. 
and there's a lot of curiosity curiosity about how the Canucks will handle uh, this hot button topic with their Pride Night approaching, uh, particularly given that the club has done a, a fa- phenomenal job with these sort of themed warm up jerseys uh, this season, but in previous years, uh, and and they had a beautiful Pride logo last year uh, for Vancouver Canucks Pride Night. Um, I asked the club for a, a sort of a statement on their plans, and, and this is what I got. I just want to read it for you before we get into positivity. We have been working on many different elements for that night, and we'll be releasing that information closer to the date like we do for all of our theme nights. We have, a, we have had a long and proud history of hosting Pride events, and we look forward to another incredible evening on March 31st to raise awareness and support the 2SL GBTQIA plus community. That's from that's from a Canucks spokesperson. Just wanted to share that intel for our listeners. Cue the ethereal music, my friends. Ah, this is the calming sound. It's really more like five minutes today, because that's all I could stomach. Of positivity. Positive vibes only. It is time. What's your positive Canucks take, Carmen? You don't have to deliver it in a voice like this, but I'm going to do the whole segment like this. Yeah, you, you should, absolutely. I think for me, pivoting off what you mentioned in terms of the team's winger depth, having that level of of organizational leeway is important given this team's unique travel schedule, the injuries that they usually face, especially because by the time it gets to you know game 60, you're going to have guys in spots that you're not accustomed to. I mean, even look at this year with the blue line right now, all these AHL guys up. Who would have thought that Noah Juleson would be on the top pair with Quinn Hughes? Uh, last season, I think about when um, the Canucks were still competing for a playoff spot and Alex Chason was uh, was playing alongside Elias Pettersson. Who would have thought about that? Who would have thought uh, about that? I think the emergence in seeing Joshua emerge as like a legit, really good fourth line guy where it's like maybe when injuries are are hampering your team, maybe he can be your ninth guy in your top nine or something. Uh, seeing Nils Oman take a step forward since being recalled, uh, seeing uh, Sheldon Dries have the year that he's had, like that that's, I, I think, more important than maybe we realize, just because now it's like, oh, it doesn't matter because they're not really in a playoff race. But if they're in this type of position next year, they're going to be right on the cutting edge if they want to make the playoffs. Like These margins and differences could be the difference between making and missing the playoffs. And so to me, the fact that you have this level of organizational depth, especially on wing, I think is... And and on the back end too. Like I think that's important overall going into next season. I guess it's not just the wingers too. It's it's the defensemen and and overall what it means. Interesting. I had an interesting exchange with Sinbin Vegas on Twitter, and that's, of course, the Vegas Golden Knights blog. Vegas fans are still a little bit traumatized from what Thatcher Demko did to them in the bubble in 2020. And so when I tweeted that Thatcher Demko was the anticipated starter, Sinbin Vegas quote tweeted me and said, Anyone know where he grew up? I'm having a hard time remembering. I guess San Diego-born Thatcher Demko is Vegas Golden Knights version of 18-year-old Sam Bennett. (laughs) I then replied that he's a figment of Pete DeBoer's nightmares, I'm pretty sure. To which Sinbin Vegas replied, that series is wild because Vegas won it, but it was the first time we saw someone deploy the strategy that has become Vegas's Achilles heel. 
Not sure Travis Green gets enough credit for it. So the possum game that the Canucks played to eliminate or at least blunt Vegas's decisive edge at 5-on-5 five five in that series from the perspective of Golden Knights observers has been emulated and is part of why the Golden Knights keep getting frustrated come playoff time as a result of a template that the Vancouver Canucks built to drag that series out and give them a chance to advance to the conference final. I think that's great. It reminds me of the last time I had a chance to really cover this team, play meaningful games, and I love that there's a legacy from that bubble playoffs that continues to frustrate a Pacific Division <laughs> opponent like the, like the Vegas Golden Knights. Like, how can you not love that? That's, that's what's so cool about the moves and counter moves and matchups that we see shape outcomes over the course of playoff runs, playoff series, and how they spill over and have sort of long tails. Uh, the frustration of that series boiling over and, and actually continuing to occupy not just headspace for Vegas Golden Knights fans and observers, but also materially impact the tactics used to combat them when the chips are down. You should maintain this calm tone of voice like not just the 10 minutes of positivity just all the time i'm serious you think so i I think so like i I legitimately you could be like i meditate every day Mm. and it's the you are my favorite part yeah you and i I are very different (laughs) and i'm not joking you could deliver like when you're speaking in that tone you, you could deliver like one of those like guided meditations and it would and it would like center me for the entire day. Well, you know, at some point, at some point, what I should do is deliver just one of my scorcher hot takes in this. You place need to, and and see if people react the same way. Like I told you, they should have traded Kuzmenko, and people will be like, "Good take." <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's gonna wrap it up for us. Thank you for joining us again today. You'll be back on Thursday. Solo show from me tomorrow, reacting to tonight's game. Canucks uh, for kids tele uh, Canucks for kids fun telethon tonight. Tune in on Sportsnet. Thanks for listening to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650.